0: I will be reading from Psalms 119, 89 through 96. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and in it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. For your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, But I consider your testimonies. I have been. I have seen a limit to all perfection. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. Bless the Lord for the reading of God's word.
1: Would you pray with me? Father God, more times than not I stand in this pulpit and I know not what to say. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to ask for. I just know that you are there and you are good. I know that your ways are better than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I know that whatever you have planned for us next, it will be more glorious, more beautiful, and bring more joy than anything we could ever manufacture on our own. So, Father, I look forward to seeing what you will do now by the working of your spirit and the power of your word. Father, I pray that you help us to be receptive to that. We would stand at attention, waiting desperately to hear from our King. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it has been four weeks since we first came to and considered together this first half of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Now, on that day, I asked you a question. Frankly, it's the same question that I ask every single time we come to some new portion of Scripture. I asked you, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Now, you'll recall that we spent that first Sunday laying out three very common approaches to this text. We then spent some time looking through the clear teaching of Scripture and finding where each of these approaches fell short. On the next Lord's Day, I delivered you a positive presentation. I showed you what I believe the Apostle Paul actually meant by what he actually said here in this verse. Now, because it seems to me that what we're talking about is something that God did long before any of us were ever born, and because it seems very clear to me that what God has done will have lasting, even eternal consequences for us and literally everyone that we love, it's quite understandable for people to be extremely passionate when it comes to their understanding of this verse. It's also, also quite understanding when people can have a difficult time understanding or receiving any teaching which does not match up with what they have always been told to believe. And so this is at least in part why we are moving so slow. Why I've been so deliberate in repeating myself week after week, some of these very same statements. I recognize that some of you are more than ready to move on. But friends, given the weight of this text... Given the fact that everything that the Apostle Paul is going to say in the ten verses which follow hangs upon this, it seems wise for us to move slowly and methodically, not just through the text itself, but through the myriad of genuine questions and concerns which always seem to be lying close at hand whenever the question of God's unconditional election comes to pass. So it seems that allowing for a season of prayer and study, even debate, But teaching and reflection reflection upon God's absolute sovereignty would bless us. I pray that through this, God would perhaps remove some of the emotionalism that seems to pop up. That he would help tear down some unhealthy and some unhelpful resistance that we might have. That perhaps he would cause us to come to an even greater unity as a church. As we strive together to know what does God actually mean by what he has actually said. So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We return to this magnificent portion of God's word. And I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. It should be received as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. of His glory, All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe what you have said. Would you work by your spirit to help us to rightly walk in it. Father, it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as I told you last week, almost universally, whenever we come to consider the doctrine of unconditional election... That is God's teaching that before the foundation of the world, God chose specific people whom he would save. That this choice was not based on anything within man, not based on anything that a man had or would do, not even based on foreseen faith, but based solely on God's sovereign will. Driven by nothing but God's good pleasure, his perfect purpose, God chose specific individual people whom he would save. Scripture tells us that he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. There was never a time in all eternity when God did not see us in Christ. And then at the appointed time, God did absolutely everything necessary to save us. Not only in sending his son to die for our sins, not only in extending to us the offer of salvation through his gospel, but by the working of his infinite power, bringing us from spiritual death to life working in us the, rege- the faith, the repentant faith which is necessary to receive this absolute gift of grace. So anytime we come to consider something as massively humbling as this, our minds ext- instinctively, they go to the question, but what about the free will of man? Now, I don't want to rehash everything that I told you last week. I would encourage you, if you've not yet listened, go back and listen to last week's sermon. But in short, if you grew up in an evangelical church of any stripe, you very likely heard that God cannot predestine He cannot choose who will and will not be saved, because if he does, then man is not truly free. In essence, life is meaningless. Beyond this, the thought of God unconditionally choosing one man to salvation while passing over another, it does not seem to match the character of this God who is love. And so men teach that what God does is he endows everyone with the same grace. He enables everyone in the same way that in and of themselves, without any work on his part, that they could reach out their hand and respond to the gospel in repentant faith. How many times have you been told God extends the offer of salvation? God lays the gift of eternal life at your feet. Now it is up to you to open it. This is what men teach. Now generally this line of thought, it comes from this, this idea that God desires for men to choose him based on their absolute freedom. That is ultimately and decisively the real purpose The reason behind their repentant faith must be their own accord, their own autonomy, their own free will. Now, they say that in order for faith to be real, in order for love to be genuine, that it must come completely from within us, completely of our own free will. And therefore, while God is sovereign and he could do absolutely anything that he desires, while God could exercise his providential control even over the desires of men, he has chosen to leave our hearts and our wills to ourselves. In fact, these folks believe that it's an assault upon God's glory to say that he must work in us the faith and love that is necessary for us to be right with him. In their minds, God is doing everything that he can within, his, within the confines of his own self-imposed boundaries, that God is doing everything that he can to save as many people as possible, but that ultimately, that the determinative factor is each man's choice, that their hearts and their wills, they have been left untouched, unmolested by God, That God left them to themselves at this point. there is nothing altogether different between one man and another. That there's no way in which God works in the life and heart of one man that he does not in every other man. It's as simple as this. One man heard the gospel. He used the grace that God had given him, and he responded in faith. Another man heard the gospel, receiving that same grace. He resisted it and continued in sin. Again, I say to them, it's as simple as that. Salvation or damnation, it all comes down to the free will of man, not the decree of God. The will of man, that is the ultimate reason for our eternal destiny. And again, I tell you, folks do this because they believe that it best reflects the glory of God. They believe that if God has extended the same saving grace into the lives of everyone, he cannot then be charged with guilt. He cannot then be charged with cruelty. Beyond this, this reasoning seems to match up with our everyday experiences, doesn't it? We know life is a life filled with choices. We see over and over again in Scripture the call to choose life and blessing and to reject death and curse. Now we can see of no way in our finite minds, we can see of no way that this reality, man making real choices with real consequences, can possibly be compatible with God providentially controlling, unconditionally electing, predestining literally everything that comes to pass. And so all of these thoughts they come crashing together and we can feel the tension. Can God be just if he literally chose only certain men to be saved? And how could our choices possibly be real? How could our choices possibly have meaning if God has literally predestined all things? We feel the tension. And we hate it. So we start to explain away certain portions of Scripture that point to God's unrelenting sovereignty. And isn't it funny that it's always this? Whenever we feel that we're backed into a corner, whenever we feel that we are compelled to choose, it is always God's ultimate control over creation which must give way, and never the autonomy of man. It is always man's sovereignty that must be upheld, and never the sovereignty of God. But in order to calm our hearts, in order to make it all make sense, we put barriers around the phrase, God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We determine what Paul can and cannot mean by what he has said. But beloved, I tried to show you that tension is good. This tension humbles us. This tension drives us to God, independent worship. It displays God's freedom in the bestowal of grace and mercy. It magnifies his glorious grace for us, perhaps like nothing else. And then inserting our own thoughts and philosophies into Scripture in order to settle our minds, it leads to some really bad theology. But by golly, does it stick? The reality is that Scripture clearly teaches that God is absolutely and unwaveringly sovereign over literally every single thing that happens in this world, including the free will choices of man. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Scripture is equally clear that man makes real choices with real consequences. As I told you last week, man chooses. Man always chooses whatever he most strongly desires at any given moment. If a man desires to reject Christ and cling to his sin, he will always do that. If in any given moment man desires sin over his obedience, he will always choose sin. But if a man desires to turn from his sin and cling to Christ in repentant faith, he will do that and he will be saved. The Lord himself said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No man comes to Christ only to be rejected. No man turns to Christ in repentant faith, only to be found that he wasn't on the list. And at the same time, no man is dragged to Christ, kicking and screaming against his will. Man always chooses what he most strongly desires at that moment. This is true and biblical free will. And this is why every man will answer to God for every decision that he has made. Because of the motives of the heart. What you must recognize is that man, the clear teaching of Scripture is that man... Natural man, man, as he is born into this world in Adam, man, if he is simply left to himself, man will never, ever choose Christ. No matter his circumstances, no matter the opportunities, natural man will not. Natural man cannot desire, therefore he cannot choose repentance and Christ. This is the teaching of Paul and Peter and Jesus and the whole of Scripture. That in every single situation, the heart of unregenerate man always chooses sin. Unless God intervenes. Unless the one who has said, let there be light. This is the teaching of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Unless the God who has said, let there be light, shines into the heart of a man. He brings him to see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Unless God calls a man to life. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Unless God causes a man to be born again, unless he grants him eyes to see and ears to hear, unless he gives him a new heart with new desires, man will never, ever, ever choose Christ. Scripture says that the gospel is the stench of death. They don't desire what it offers to them. So I gave you a long list of scriptures last week. Again, every week I stand before you and I say, don't trust me just because I say it. The reality is that so much bad theology has stuck so deep within your minds because you have trusted the words of men and you've never tested it against the scriptures. So I tell you, don't simply jump camps. Go and explore for yourself. And I gave you a long list of scriptures. I asked you to go study them for, the, for yourself in their context. See, if, not, if I've not rightly handled the word, what I believe you will find is that the whole of the New Testament clearly teaches that man is free to choose what he wants most, but he is morally unable To want Christ. It isn't that he's trying to come to Christ only to be rejected. Again, I say, it isn't that he cries out to Christ in repentant faith only to find out that he has not been chosen by God. It's that his heart, his will, is so enslaved by sin that he himself is so in love with darkness that his mind is so corrupted by depravity that in his freedom he will never turn to Christ and be saved. He is morally unable to want Christ. Therefore, he is morally unable to to choose Christ unless God sovereignly and powerfully intervenes and gives the man new desires. So this morning, we move on to the second most common question. And next week, God willing, we'll study the scriptures together to try and find out where evangelism fits in to all of this. I do need to tell you this is a long sermon. That's a lot coming from me. I promise to move fast and not have too many extra words. But my desire is that before Christmas we would get out of Ephesians 1 4. And so, in order to do that, I pack a lot into each sermon. But after the question of free will, it's not completely disconnected with the question of free will, but after the question of free will, the question that most often comes up is what about prayer? Now, this is a far more sweeping concern. It doesn't concern just the salvation of men, but literally all areas of life. The question is, how can prayer be meaningful if God has literally decreed everything that happens? And allow me to be clear. This is precisely what I believe Scripture to be saying. When we get to verse 11, we're going to find Paul saying that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. As I will show you when God brings us there. I believe that Scripture is shockingly and consistently clear on the matter. That when the Apostle Paul says that God works all things, according to the counsel of his will, he means literally all things. Good things, bad things. Big things, small things. The hairs on your head, the birds in the sky. Kings and boundaries and nations. Earthquakes and tsunamis. Everything down to the shirt that you're wearing this morning. Do you remember the scenario from last week? I told you, and you know this to be true, that you chose that shirt, the shirt that you were wearing, you chose it because it was what you most strongly desired to do in that moment. Your your choices, they may have been limited. You may not have been in love with any of your choices, but you chose that shirt because you desired it more than you desired any of the alternatives, including simply staying home with no shirt on. You freely chose that shirt. And you freely chose it because God decreed. He foreordained that you would. Allow well, me to show you. Oh, goodness. This will be a long sermon if my laptop gets a mind of its own. So let me show you a very quick example from Scripture so you know that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. If you look to Ezra chapter 6. Specifically, verse 22, you know the setting here. The Jewish people, they have returned to Jerusalem. Under the help of pagan kings, they have returned from And What we know is that King Darius, he sent his men out and they searched. And they found that King Cyrus had made a decree. Then King Darius, based on the decree of King Cyrus, he made a decree of his own. We read that the people, they had come back to Jerusalem. And then Ezra 6, verse 22, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them fruit joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Do you see this? God had sovereignly decreed before the foundation of the world that this would happen. How do I know? Because if you go up to verse 14, what does it say? It says that this happened because it had been decreed by the God of Israel and it had been decreed by Cyrus and it had been decreed by Darius. Do you see? It is God's decree that drove all of this. God had sovereignly decreed before the foundation of the world that all this would come to pass. He therefore prophesied hundreds of years before this moment that all of this would come to pass. That the people would return from exile, that they would rebuild the temple, that they would celebrate the Passover. in order to accomplish this, God decreed that this man, that this king would help in this specific way. Do you see how many free will choices had to come into play to lead us to this very moment? And yet we know that even at this moment, it was God who turned the heart of this king to do exactly what he had decreed. Don't you understand? God turned the heart of the king. So the king would desire to do exactly what God had decreed for him to do. Doesn't this match up up with Proverbs 21, 1, where he says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The king acted of his own will and his own desire. This is what the king most strongly wanted to do at this moment, and he desired it Because God ordained that it would happen. So in the experiences of the king, did he feel God's hand upon his heart? Probably not. He did what most seemed right to him. He did what he desired most in that moment. Just like what you most desired in that moment was to marry your wife, or to take that job, or to buy that house, or to come to this church. The king did what seemed most right to him in that moment because the God of the universe turned his heart to do exactly that. God had decreed it. Therefore, this man would freely will to do it because God had predestined it to be so. Could the king have rejected this? Sure. Nobody put a gun to his head. He could have decided otherwise. Even if someone had put a gun to his head, couldn't he have said, Well, I just choose to die rather than doing the thing that you have told me to do? There was nothing external to the king that required him to make this decision. And I believe that's precisely what God is showing us here. This wasn't a pauper, this was the king. He was as sovereign and free as any man could ever possibly be. And in his freedom, God decreed that he would choose to do exactly what he had decreed. Without doing any violence to his will or the will of anyone else, God turns hearts so that we may desire to accomplish exactly what he has foreordained. Now, I realize how mind-boggling this can be at first. This is in part why I'm planting these seeds now so that you can begin to stew on them. Because what happens is we dip our toe in the water and you say, okay, I get it. I see it now. It's undeniable in Scripture. God has cho- chosen, He has elected, He has predestined everyone whom He will save. And you start to get comfortable. The water temperature starts to feel fine. And then a dude gets up and says, oh, yeah, by the way, He's also predestined the shirt you wear, the car you drive person you marry you whoa, whoa, whoa wait wait a minute I didn't know this was part of the gig so I'm letting you know right now it is so I'm giving you some time to study for yourself to consider it for yourself I would ask you I ask you to pray to God to enable you as much as you're able to come to these passages with a clean slate and an open mind look at Genesis 45 4 to 8 look at all of Job 38 look at all of Proverbs 16 Look at Isaiah 10, 5 through 19. Look at Acts 4, 27 to 28. I've got many more I can give you, but that should give you a start. You notice I stayed away from anything that Paul wrote. I'm taking you to the whole of Scripture, much of this Old Testament Scripture, to make clear that God literally, sovereignly decrees everything that comes to pass. I challenge you to go to those texts. Read them as if you were reading them for the first time. Read them in their full context. Don't bring any outside presuppositions to the text, as difficult as that is. And I ask you if you can come to any conclusion other than this, that there is not one single speck of dust. In the words of R.C. Sproul, there is not one maverick molecule, not even the free will choices, the hearts of men, which do anything except exactly that which God has decreed. So I need to say one more thing here before we move on and try to answer the question of, of prayer. Actually, we're doing pretty good on time. Some people who will consider this doctrine for the very first time, they'll be tempted to throw up their hands. There's stages, like there's stages of grief, there's stages of Calvinism. You, you, you come to it and you say, Mama said can't be true. Then you come to it and you say, well, I see it, but I don't like it. Then you come to it and you say, well, I see it. Therefore, I must receive it because it is true. But then all these questions come flooding in. You can get, you can get greatly discouraged. I, I told you several weeks ago that there's many men who have said that when a man comes to Calvinism, the first thing he should do is lock himself in a cage for no less than three years so he doesn't destroy every relationship that he has. The problem, though, is you'll find yourself locked in that, state, in that cage in utter despair because you can't help but come to the conclusion that if this is true, if it is true that God literally ordains everything that happens, then nothing we decide matters. No choices we make have any meaning. Nothing in this life amounts to anything. Dear children, allow me to submit to you this morning that it's actually the exact opposite, which is true. That it is precisely because every single decision matters that God has chosen to exercise his divine providence in upholding and directing and disposing and governing literally everything. Think with me for a moment. Literally every single Christian believes the words of Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And it seems to me that the vast majority of evangelicals are in love with the phrase once saved, always saved, or as it is better known, the perseverance of the saints. But then when you ask them, you'll find out that they simultaneously believe that God allows us to act autonomously with regards to our day-to-day decisions. They might say things, well, God intervenes in kings and wars and big, very important moments in history, whenever that's necessary, but he cannot be bothered with the minutia of day-to-day life. He doesn't need to. He's God. He'll just wrap it all up in the end, won't he? He'll just take all the random things that happen in this world, and he's God. Isn't that more powerful than having to control literally everything that happens along the way? He will come to the end, he will wrap it all up. Those who are his, he will make sure that we end up in heaven. Again, I say, they find this to be more glorious, more powerful representation of God. But, church, do you know where this faulty line of thinking leads? Surely you do. At least a men saying a prayer, running like a dog, and expecting they're going to wake up in heaven someday. These men believing, frankly, that there's only three moments in their life that matter at all the day of their natural birth, the day that they said a prayer, and the day they wake up in heaven. And everything else in between is completely inconsequential. You've seen this. But the moment that you slow down and think for a minute, now, we tell this lie to ourselves because. We want to live the way that we want to live and because there's many people that fall into that category that we love so desperately that we want so desperately to see in heaven. When we slow down and think for a minute about what God has actually said, we must eventually confess that there are people we know and love that are walking around utterly deceived. Scripture talks about a changed life. Scripture talks about running a race. Scripture talks about enduring to the end, not checking in once like we've come to the airport terminal. We say, I'm here Call me when it's time to come back. Not saying some magic prayer at one particular point in life and then living like the world, expecting that somehow I'm going to end up in heaven. It's a transformed life at every single moment from this day until the last, not to earn eternal life, but as evidence that we have been changed. A new creation with new priorities and new desires, a new heart that cherishes new things., friends, I tell you that every moment in this life matters. Don't you see? that if God had no plan and no purpose in literally every detail of this life, if he was literally sitting back with his hands off he says, you know what? I want your love to come completely for yourself. Love which you cannot manufacture, by the way. But he says, I want you to be completely free in whether you choose or do not choose me. And so I'll just take whatever random thing happens in this world. I don't want to intervene in the day-to-days. I'm going to take whatever random choices you make, whatever falls out, falls out, because in the end, we're all going to end up in the same point anyway. I'm not saying that all will be saved, but my plan will come to pass in the end. All of history and your eternity, it will end up in the same point anyway. Dear brothers, don't you see if this is true, true, then there are literally millions, perhaps trillions of things in this life that are completely meaningless and without purpose. It's like me saying to you that Astros are going to win the game tonight. Even if they score two runs to the other team's seven. Then nothing that happens on the field mattered. Or it's like a man saying that surely I can stop this, run of, uh, this, this race of faith. I can stop halfway. I don't have to endure to the end. I can sit down in the stands and watch from here. But it's all going to end up the same anyway. Don't you understand? That if this is true then literally the vast majority of what happens in this world is completely meaningless. It's your birth, it's the moment you said the magic prayer, and it's the day you end up in heaven. Talk about fatalism. Talk about pointlessness. But you must see that in addition to this, if this were true, it would also mean that there is evil that is allowed to be perpetrated with absolutely no reason other than that God wanted you to be free. In order to defend your autonomy, there is pointless and meaningless evil and suffering and sorrow and pain that happens all over this world and all throughout your life. Don't you see this? If God does not have a plan and a purpose and a decree and literally everything that comes to pass, all things great and small, then there are acts of violence and sin and unspeakable tragedy with literally no meaning. Dear children, I'm telling you that every single one of these moments, every single one of these decisions, every single word, every single thought, every single desire, every single motive, every single tear, every single heartbreak, every single ounce of suffering, they all matter. They matter more than you could ever imagine. And in love, God has ordained them all. So at every point we can trust. We don't just look forward to eternity and say, well, he's going to wrap it up all somehow. We can look at every single point along the way, no matter how desperate, no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how tragic that moment feels, no matter how bad that moment actually is, we can trust that this thing would not have come had God not ordained it. God only ordains that which is for his glory and my good. Therefore, even now, Even in this, I can praise him for the praise of his glorious grace. I can praise him for the grace that he is pouring into my life. I can exalt his name in the middle of this suffering. Don't you see? It's precisely because every single moment matters that God has predestined and ordained and is working at all things. So back to our question. Assuming that all that I've said is true then what's the point of praying? If God has determined who will and will not be saved, if God has determined what tomorrow will hold, if God has literally determined the number of hairs on my head, and it's all according to his eternal and immutable decree, why in the world would I bother praying? Well, the first and most obvious answer is that we pray because God has commanded us to pray. Philippians 4, 6 tells us to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In reality, we wouldn't be wrong to stop here. God not only welcomes us to pray, not only welcomes us to come into his presence and ask for what we wish, he commands it. God commands it, therefore we do it. Regardless of how you understand the sovereignty of God, if your theology causes you to pray less, then you're not thinking right thoughts about God, or you're not living rightly in light of what you know to be true. So we pray because God tells us to pray. But I'm not sure that in reality that gives you a whole lot more comfort or gives you any more hope or answers your question any more clearly than where we first started. It certainly isn't going to help you to come to God with the joy and the expectancy that Scripture seems to call for. And so in light of all that we have been studying, you might be tempted to think, okay, I will pray if that's what pleases God, but I still don't see what it accomplishes. Aren't my prayers completely pointless if God is sovereign in the way that you have described that's why I'm so very thankful that we can go a bit further. I do not believe that God has left us just with a blind command. I certainly don't find any evidence in Scripture that our prayer, the prayers of God's people are meaningless any more than the choices we make are meaningless. It's quite the opposite. What we must recognize is that while God has decreed literally everything that comes to pass, I need you to listen now. While he exercises all things according to his most wise and holy providence, He does not do so only by means of unexplainable supernatural force. Let me explain. There are times when God will do something completely outside and above and beyond the natural order of this world. Think about Joshua and the Israelites when they went to battle against the Amorites. It's recorded for us in Joshua 10. God had promised that they would prevail, but the day was getting late. God had told them, do not fear, for I have given them into your hands For not a man of them shall stand before you. But the sun was going down and they needed more time to fight. Joshua prays and God does something miraculous. The sun, verse 13, Joshua 10, the sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. God stopped the sun in the sky. That doesn't happen every day. Now we actually know that what happened was God caused the earth to stop rotating. This is common language for us, though. We talk about the sun setting, not the earth rotating each night. So we know actually what happened was God must have stopped the earth from spinning. And this is not the point of this morning's sermon, but you know how I love this stuff. And I can't, I've got to draw your eyes here to the craziness of this. Do you understand this? That apart from the fact that the earth stops rotating, we fall out of our orbit. You know that the earth is spinning somewhere around 1,000 miles per hour. That we don't feel it. But that literally right now, we ourselves are moving to the east at a thousand miles an hour. That because of gravity and because of the constant rate of motion, we don't feel it in this moment. But if it stopped, you would. If the earth stopped rotating, we turned to mush because we all slam into that wall at the speed of sound. And yet God supernaturally worked in such a way that the earth stopped Spinning. The sun stood still in the sky and the people didn't all come crashing to their death, but these situations are rare That's why i'm so amazed by it. That's why we call it a miracle That's Why we refer to it as something supernatural But for the sake of his own glory god can and does from time to time work completely contrary to his own laws of nation nature He's god. He gets to do that but far more regularly Literally, at every other single moment in the history of the world, God works through means of other secondary causes. Isn't this what God promised to Noah after they came out of the ark? As he enters into this covenant with all of creation, never again to flood the earth, we read this in Genesis eight twenty one. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the, earth, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. So you see this as an act of absolute unmerited grace. God would have been completely within his rights, completely just to destroy us all in Adam in the beginning. Certainly right to destroy us all in the day of Noah because of the sin of men. Because of the evil that was within the hearts of all men. And yet he spares this man and his family. Then is another act of grace. He re-delivers to him the very same charge that he delivered to Adam. To be fruitful and multiply. That God's desire, God's plan, God's decree, was that man would increase, he would fill the earth as little image bearers and represent him in exercising dominion. More than this, all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3, he has said that from woman would come an offspring, a man who would crush the head of the serpent. He promised Jesus that Jesus would come from a woman. So therefore, God worked in exactly this way in the bringing forth of Jesus, bringing forth of that which he had decreed. To ensure that this had happened, God established and he preserves the natural pattern that the sun rises and the sun sun sets, that the seasons, they come and go, that it rains and crops grow. In short, God made this earth livable. This is one of the ways that he worked, one of the means by which he accomplished his decrees. But we don't think about it. You don't think about this. You take it completely for granted. But we know that literally every single millisecond that we don't float off of this earth, literally every single second that we take in a deep breath and we have oxygen there to receive, every single time our body is healed of a common cold, every single time the cells in our body hold together, we know that this is all because of the will and working of God. He is the ultimate cause behind all of this. That truly, as Hebrews 1.3 says, that God upholds all things by the power of his word through Christ. That is in His hand and all according to His grace that all of these things come to pass. So, Scripture clearly teaches that God is the primary and ultimate cause of literally everything that happens, but that He uses means. That God, more often than not, utilizes secondary causes to bring about His will. The point is that God is the true cause of these secondary causes. Are you following me? You would have no oxygen for your lungs. You would have no gravity to hold you to the ground. You would have no food to put in your belly. You would have no words that you could speak. You would have no thoughts firing within your head. You would not have no heart beating within your chest. You would have no one to speak to. You would have none of this had God not working through these secondary means, these other causes to bring about his good purposes. And you understand why this matters. Because when we say that God always accomplishes his will, when we say that nothing happens unless God has decreed it, we do not mean that all of creation and the hearts of men are all pulling one direction, while God at all times steps in supernaturally and overthrows it. Now he can. Again, he has and he does. We know in the final day that he will come and the earth will be consumed by fire. That God is God and he can intervene in any way that he sees fit. He doesn't have to use these means. He's not obligated to these means. And yet he has chosen in the vast majority of circumstances, he has chosen to work through the secondary, oftentimes ordinary means to accomplish his will. So we must recognize that God has ordained and established and caused not only the ends, but the means by which he brings about those ends. He doesn't just decree what will happen. He decrees literally how it will happen. That one of God's means one of the primary ways that God does the things that he does is through the prayers of his people. Again, he's not obligated to that. He's not required by that. He's not in some way limited by that. He has chosen that by means of the prayers of the saints, he will accomplish that which he has decreed. And therefore, he has decreed even those prayers. And you see, this is where most of us get tripped up. We don't say it out loud, but most of us think. We begin to ponder, what's the point in praying if I can't change God's mind? Now again, it's not always that straightforward, maybe an oversimplification, but we do tend to think that, don't we? If God has already made up his mind, and he's going to do what he's going to do. If I can't change his course, if I can't change his plans, if I can't change his mind, then what's the point? Well, the first question I would ask you is, what in the world makes you think you would want to change God's mind if you could? What do you know that God doesn't? Isaiah forty thirteen. who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Who are you, O man, to seek to advise God? You think you would reveal something new to him? Even your own thoughts and desires. You don't even know the desires of your own heart. Your heart is deceptive, exceedingly wicked. You don't even know your own motives. But God does because he has put them there. God knows every word, every thought, every desire, every motive. What did Peter say to Jesus after the resurrection? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So what are you going to tell God that he doesn't know? Not only this, but he knows everything that you need before you ask him. Matthew 6:18. your father knows what you need before you ask him. How's that for straightforward? God knows what you need. He has promised to provide it. We believe that Romans eight twenty eight says he's working all things for the, our good. So again, I ask, in what possible way could you advise God? In what possible way could you change God's mind or God's plans for the better? Is he going to realize that he has forgotten something? Are you going to show him some better path? Every time that I change my mind about something, it's because I've learned new information. I run out of resources. I realize that I've messed up. I realize that my original plan was evil. There's always some lack within me that causes me to change my course. What lack do you find in God? Even if you don't believe that he is absolutely providentially in control of all things, we all agree that God knows all things perfectly. We all believe that his wisdom is infinite and unending. We all believe that he is completely and totally for you in all things. We believe that he is infinitely right and holy and just and good. So again I ask, what could you possibly ask God for that's better than what he's already planned? Now I know what you think. What about the salvation of someone that he's not yet saved? We're back to the question I asked you last week. If you don't believe that God actually touches the hearts, and minds and souls and desires of men and causes them to believe and be saved, what in the world are you praying for anyway? I told you last week, if someone you love dearly enough is lost, you will pray like a Calvinist. You won't worry about the autonomy of man. You won't worry about their free will. You will say, God, overwhelm them. You drag them into deep waters where they can't have any hope of touching the bottom. You overwhelm them. You cause them to repent and believe. Again, otherwise, what do you pray for? Pretty weather to bring them into a good mood so they'll be receptive to the gospel on that day? But we may feel that we're just right back to the start then. So you're telling me that prayer makes no difference? No, I didn't say that. What I said is that your prayers don't change the mind of God. What I said is that your prayers don't change the plans of God. That God's person and his plans are immutable. They never change. They cannot change. To change would be to either improve or to get worse. God is infinitely good. He can neither get better nor get worse. He is the infinite I am. His decrees have been set firm before the foundation of the world. Psalm 3311, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. His plans, the plans of his heart for all generations our plans absolutely do not change the mind or the person or the plans of God. But this does not mean that there is not great power. This does not mean that our, pla- that our prayers don't actually change things. It does not mean that our prayers don't have a monumental effect on this world. Because it is our plans by which God has, choos- has chosen to accomplish his decrees. Go back to Joshua. Why did Joshua pray the way that he had prayed? Because God had told him, you will win this battle. I have decreed that you will win this battle, and not a one of these men will stand. Joshua looks up, and the sun's going down. And he says, well, God has decreed this thing. It will not happen unless something else happens. So based on God's decree, Joshua prayed, and God did exactly what he had foreordained to do. Do you see? Did Joshua pray for what he really, really want, what he prayed for? Absolutely. Would the sun have not stood still if Joshua hadn't, pray, uh, hadn't prayed? I don't think it would have we read in James 4, you have not because you ask not. And so Joshua's prayer, it had incredible meaning to it. It caused incredible change. It caused the sun to stand still in the sky. What else could you want? Go read the story of Ezekiel 37, where the king goes and prays before God. In response to that prayer, he sends one angel that kills more than 100,000 soldiers. Dear friend, your prayers change more than you could ever imagine. But they do so because God has decreed it to be so. Joshua's prayer was the secondary cause behind the sun standing still in the sky. That God was the true and ultimate cause. Not only behind the sun standing still in the sky, but behind Joshua's prayer. God ordained not only the ends, but the means. Joshua didn't change the mind of God. Joshua didn't reveal something new to God. Joshua didn't convince God to do something he had not already decided to do. In the words of A.W. Pink, here then is the design of prayer. Not that God's will may be altered, but that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. This is precisely what God means when he says that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, we have what we have requested. Now, you know there's two ways that God speaks of the will of God. There's God's will of command. Those things which he tells us to do. Thou shalt not murder. There's literally millions of times every single day that man is not doing this will of God. But then there's the will of decree. All things according to the counsel of his will, those things which God has decreed and absolutely will come to pass. Man cannot resist, man cannot thwart, man cannot stop this will of God. And so which will are we speaking of here? When God says that if we pray anything according to his will, we have what we we have requested. What will is he speaking of? Well, certainly it has to be his will of decree. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. What was Jesus praying for there? He was saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Implicit within that is that he was about to be murdered, killed at the hands of evil men. The most sinful and hateful act in the history of the world. And so Jesus prays three times. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. But hadn't God already expressed his will that murder was evil? Hadn't God already commanded that thou shalt not take the life of an innocent man, not less the Son of God? So clearly he was not speaking about the commanded will of God. He's talking about the decreed will of God. That which God had predestined before the foundation of the world. That which the apostles stood around in Acts 4 and said, God, we know that in this city, both Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles and all these other evil men, they did exactly what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Dear children, if you don't have God literally ordaining everything that comes to pass, even the evil acts of men, you don't have a cross of Jesus Christ. You have God making lemonades out of lemon. This was what God clearly had decreed would happen. And so Jesus would not be spared from the cup of his father's wrath because it was not his father's will. Don't you see? God says the prayers that he answers in the affirmative are those prayers which align with his good and perfect and eternal plans. His will of decree. But I want to show you one more thing because it's still at this point you can get very disheartened if you're not careful. Because it can feel like then, okay, then what our prayer life is, is we're just throwing stuff against the wall. We're just shooting in the dark. We're just hoping that somehow the things that we desire happen to make it on the list of things that God has decreed, right? if you're thinking rationally at this point for the first time, if you're working through this for the first time, if you're saying, okay, God will only do the things that he has decreed. God will do those in accordance with my prayers, but I don't know at all times what his will is. And so I'm just blindly groping at things, hoping that somehow my will and his will match up. Therefore, the thing that I pray for, it will happen. Dear friends, there's something so much better than this. Turn to Romans 8. This was right before this list of beautiful promises about God's unfailing love and his guarantee that those whom he has chosen will be brought to glory. And we find Paul here talking about the pain and the suffering and the, the corruption in this present world because of sin. In Romans eight twenty two, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly as ado- for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you've got the whole of the universe groaning, knowing that things are not as they should be and are not as they will one day be. And you've got the redeemed saints groaning because while we ourselves and our spirit are being renewed, still we die. Still these bodies are wasting away. Still we are surrounded by sin. And so you've got this this longing within us for eternity, and it's causing this groaning. And then as we skip down to verse twenty-six, Romans eight twenty-six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You feel this deep, don't you? You are weak, you are tired, you are sick, you are frail, you are needy, and you don't even know what to pray for. We go into our prayer closet every day not having any real idea at times what it is that we're meant to pray for. We don't even know how to pray at times. We're doing our best just to drag our bodies in there and fall down on the floor before God. God, I don't know what I want, but I know this isn't it. God, I don't even know what spirit to pray, and I don't even know what attitude to pray, and I don't even know how to bring my supplications before you. I just know that this isn't it. But then we feel so very convicted and ashamed. The enemy comes against us and says, why aren't you better at this? Why aren't you stronger? Why aren't your prayers what they should be? Why don't you know what to pray for? He goes on. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I definitely don't have time to fully unpack this, but I do not believe that these groanings are being uttered by the Spirit himself. The Spirit of God, he is not weak. He is not discouraged or confused. When it comes to communication between the Spirit and the Father, he has no weakness or no lack or no trouble. These are our groanings, but they come to us by the working of the Spirit. We've been sealed with the Spirit. That's what we will read at the end of this magnificent portion of Ephesians chapter 1, that we've already received the guarantee of our inheritance, and we've already tasted a a bit of eternity. We already know what awaits us there, and through the working of the Holy Spirit and through the new desires that the Spirit gives us, He is causing us to cry out with these groans. Not audible groans. There's men that have twisted themselves up into some really creepy worship services, thinking that this means we all should only pray with just Ah oh! It's a groan of the heart. It's a groan of the soul, it's a groan of the spirit, it's a groan that you feel every single day when you walk around, and you think, This is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 27 And he who searches hearts, that's the Father. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. God knows the heart even when we don't. He knows our desires even when we don't understand them because he has placed them there. And he has placed within us this longing for more, this desperate desire to be home with him. And the Father knows this. He sees into our heart. Even when we don't know what we want, even when we don't know what we're lacking, even when we don't know what to ask for, even if he says, I'm a genie, I'll give you whatever you ask for. We say, well, I don't even know what to say in this moment, God. He says, I know your heart and I know what you want. And beyond that, I know the mind of the Spirit who has put it there. Because we are of one accord, Of one will, of one purpose, working towards one end for your good and my glory. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is so good. We're going to read back in Hebrews chapter 7. You read there that Christ is always making intercession for us. He is always there at the right hand of the Father. He is always speaking to the Father on our behalf when we don't know what to say. He is speaking to the Father. He's constantly bringing his work before the Father so that we would be treated as he deserved. So that we would be loved as sons because of what the Son has done. So that we've got an intercessor there, Jesus Christ, always standing at the right hand of the Father. Not for all men, but for the saints. For those who are his. But then we've got the Spirit as an intercessor too. And he knows the will of God because this is his will. John 16, 13 says he only speaks that which he has heard from the Father. So the Spirit of God, he intercedes. How does he intercede? Perfectly in communion with the will of the Father. We don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know what to desire. But we always have this intercessor there. And he does. And he's moving within us. And we're groaning out. And we don't even know ourselves what these groans mean. But they match up perfectly with the will of God because the Spirit only does that which the Father wills. And the word here that's used, it's it's a, a the Greek word is a big compound word and I can only find it one other place in scripture and it's with regards to Mary and Martha and it doesn't mean that the spirit knocks us out of the way he says I'm going to do the praying, you sit on the bench it's coming alongside and helping us in our weakness, it's working in and through us in our weakness, it's bringing about these groans it's producing in us new desires if you look up the page a little bit in Romans eight fourteen, we see that all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit is bearing witness to it. He is testifying to us, and we know this because our heart cries out, not audibly, but our heart cries out, You're my Father. I love you. There's a tenderness here. And we have this testimony. We have this assurance that eternity is ours because the Spirit has been placed within us. It's a down payment and it's a promise and we know that this world is not our home because there's desires that can't be met by this world. We have a longing that can't even be expressed and so we're groaning and we're groaning and we're groaning and we're calling out to our Father and saying, God, I don't even know what I want, but I know I want this life to count for something. I want every moment to mean something. I want you to be glorified and I want you to work for my good and I want to march on in endurance. I want to carry on to the end. And You see the triune God working together in perfect unity, don't you see? In all things, the spirit groaning, the son interceding, and the father granting that which he wills. And all happening exactly as God has decreed. And so, I'm trying to get ahead of you here with your doubts because what's going to happen is some of you going to say, well, I still don't see the point of prayer. God's only going to grant us that which he wills. And if the Spirit knows that which God wills and he's interceding for us with these groanings in accordance with the will of God, then why doesn't the Spirit just pray to the Father and leave us out of it? Why do we have to go through the weakness? Why do we have to go through the frustration? Why do we have to go through the trouble and the effort? Difference, prayer is hard. I'm sure there's some of you that maybe don't think that to be true, but I'm telling you as a dude that gets paid money to pray, It is really hard sometimes. It's hard even to have the desire sometimes. Can I tell you that? Well, then why don't you just leave me out of it, God? Just go talk to yourself. Make up your plans, and I'll see you in heaven. Don't you see how to do this would be completely to miss the purpose of prayer? Because prayer, like everything else, is for God's glory and our good. God is glorified when we come to him in communion like this we confess our need and our desperate dependence upon him and all things, not just him, but all the world. When someone comes to us and says, I have need of this, and you say, I got nothing for you, but I know the one who has endless supply. He's glorified when He's our first thought in the morning. He's glorified when He's our, first, our last thought before we lay down in bed. He's glorified when, in the moment of deep, deepest need, our hearts are drawn immediately to Him. When every cry, when every act of worship, when every act of gratitude, every act of thanks, every act of everything is always directed upwards towards Him. God is glorified in this. And we are blessed because our hearts are constantly bound to Him. When's the last time you thanked God for gravity, by the way? You probably don't thank God for oxygen until it's hard to come by. Don't you see? For your good, he's drawing you into this fellowship with him. He's giving you these gifts according to his decree. He says the way this will happen is you will come to me. You will hold on fast like the desperate widow, like the thoughtless neighbor. You will come time after time after time after time. And as you stand with me, not only will I be glorified, but you'll be changed. You'll find that my desires become your desires. You'll find joy in your time with me, in your your time of communion. You'll continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller while I grow bigger than you could ever imagine. And eventually we're freed up. We come to him and we can freely ask whatever we wish, trusting that he has molded our desires, he has shaped our desires. Scripture says that if you ask him for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a snake. Guess what? There's times that you've asked God for a snake and he gave you a loaf of bread instead. You see how free this makes you? We're blessed in ways that we would not possibly be had we not spent this time with God. Had he simply given us what we desired? Had he simply given us what he had willed to do? And he does that sometimes. Had he simply already given us, absent our prayers, our persistent prayers, had he just given us the thing that we desired and he willed, had we not come to him in prayers, do you see how much we would have missed out on? I know the analogy doesn't work perfectly, but think about the candy bowl in my office. It's just candy, I got enough money, I could buy every single kid in this church their own fishbowl full of candy. I could mail it to your house. Or I could put the bowl outside my door so that you don't have to come in and bother me while I'm studying. But it's not about the stupid candy. It's not about the fishbowl. It's about the communion. I want you to see how blessed these children are and I am as they come to me. I desperately want these children to know that their pastor loves them. Is it for my sake? Of course. Kids are funny. I like them more than y'all. I'd rather spend time with them. I'm of course blessed by this. But it's much more for them. I want them to know that the man that stands up and proclaims the word of God loves them. The man that might have to show up on their doorstep to deliver sad and scary news loves them. The man who might have to discipline them when necessary loves them. So I keep the candy bowl on my desk. I want them to know that I love them. And they learn this best when they spend time with me. When I learn stories about their trip to Disney, their cat called Oreo. Don't you understand? There's nothing I love more than when a kid comes bursting into my office unannounced. That's not proper. That's not polite. But gum it shows something great. They know I'm not going to scold them. They know I'm not going to shoo them away. They know that I love them. And again, this analogy, it falls short all over the place, but you've got to see it. Because there's a whole other layer to this. I think about all the children that I've introduced to lollipops. Angie Saldaniel, one of her, she came in there. I said, Can she have a sucker? She said, She never has. I had to fight that baby to get a sucker in her mouth. She didn't want it. But, buddy, once she tasted it, she had three of them in there. I introduced her to a taste, I introduced her to a desire of something she never knew she wanted. I did it expressly for the purpose that she would know that I'm the guy with the candy. Don't you understand? There's kids that come up here on Saturday night, the, the custodians, they get here late on Saturday night, and I'm often here, and I hear their children out there, and so I've gotten in the habit, whenever I'm, whenever I'm leaving my office, I put a handful of lollipops in my pocket, and I go out there and I hand those to those kids, and they're very polite, and they're very kind, and very thankful, and they take whatever color I give them, and they say, thank you, sir, and they go back to whatever they're doing. Do you realize all that those kids miss out on? They get the same lollipop. But they don't have to come to me. We don't have the same communion. One time they had a big sister that wasn't down there with them. Their sister didn't even see the hand of the man who delivered the lollipop. Do you see what she's missed out on? Friends, this is the purpose of prayer. And you know this. You've seen this. Almost done. But this, is, this is good. Forget about lollipops. We've seen this play out in real life, haven't we? I don't ever speak about men in this church, but Alan, you're going to have to forgive me. How many Wednesday nights did we spend praying for that man? And how often did we not know how to pray? Because we didn't know the will of God. We didn't know whether we should pray for miraculous healing or that God would call him home peacefully. There were groanings in our heart. I'm sure there was groanings in Ellen's heart. I don't even know what to want for right now. Alan at times probably, I don't know what to want for. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I know that eternity waits for me. I know that nothing but suffering happens in this life. But it be to your glory that I stay and I fight. Whatever you will, that I will do. And then I remember, it's a group of us, we went together late one Monday night to Ellen's house. Because it sounded like we're at the end. We're done. So we're gathering together some of us are praying God take our brother in peace. Let him die with dignity Let him die with honor. Let him die with bravery some brothers. I remember Carrie. What did you say? God heal him Is that what you said? God heal him. I don't know what else to say So we're praying all over the map. We're praying at cross purposes here Brothers and sisters all coming together. I was praying for you to die. He was praying for you to be healed Don't you see? And how many millions of other men did God heal based on one prayer? How many more did He heal based on no prayers at all because they never even knew they were sick? If God had done that, don't you see all that we would have missed out on? Because when that man rolled through that door, I felt a gasp of audible joy in this worship center. Don't you understand? How has God blessed you? How has God blessed you? You didn't change God's mind. We all know God numbered his days before there was one. We can't add a a single second to his life, a single hair to his head. God had decreed, I'm not done with you. You're going to live. The Spirit groaned within us. He prayed in accordance with the will of the Father. The Father used those prayers. You would be dead if we hadn't prayed. So God calls us to pray. Pray. And he is glorified. And we are blessed. Dear friends, I pray you see this. I pray you see how the sovereignty of God in no way diminishes our prayers. It makes them more glorious than you could ever imagine. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people. Father, this is, this is difficult stuff. What normal men show up and listen to hour plus sermons each week, especially on things that just stretch our minds beyond their natural capacities. And yet, Father, you have built this people different. And so I praise you for them. I praise you for your word, and I praise you for the reality that you have not chosen to work absent us, that you have chosen to work through us, that you have included us as the means and the accomplishment of all that you have predestined to take place. So, Father, now we seek to give you glory in light of that. We pray that you would be glorified not only by the words that come from our lips, but by the meditations of our heart. God, we love you. We trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.